0: We have a big class, so uh, I'm going to try my best to speak up. But um, I think my voice will only project so far. But uh, just to remind you, uh, we're on we're on the recording. So if you have a comment or question, if you're going to read a Bible verse, raise your hand. Carlos in the back will give you the mic. And uh, the mic is only for the recording. It's not on any amplification system. So you're still going to have to speak up when you when you speak on the mic. So uh, hey Dodge. So uh, make sure that we uh, be nice to the listeners on audioverse. Okay, <clears throat> let's pray, and then we'll get started. Father this morning, we come before you, thankful for another day of life, and also thankful that you have given us another opportunity to open the book of Revelation. And as we study this book, we pray that we will receive that blessing that you have promised in uh, chapter 1. And as we delve into some deep things today, I pray that you will sharpen our minds, uh, open our hearts, that we may hear what the Spirit wants to teach us. And we invite you here to be in our presence, to be our teacher now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. last week... We went through chapter 1. I'm not going to go review very much. There's a lot to cover. But I just want to touch on one thing that I didn't get to mention last week. We sort of glossed over it, but I think it's important enough to uh, discuss it, or point it out at least. It's in Revelation chapter 1, verse 10. Welcome to those who are just coming. Revelation 1 and verse 10, it says... I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. And we know later that voice is described as Jesus. Now, it's very interesting that John points out what day it was that he received the vision, or he received the information given in the book of Revelation. It was, to use the Bible's words, it was on the Lord's day. And... Um, Interestingly enough, a few, uh, several times actually, I was, I was looking through um, sort of the, the beliefs or fundamental beliefs of various Sunday-keeping churches. And almost all of them quote this verse as a reason why they worship on the first day of the week or Sunday. Now, a couple questions. Where in this verse does it tell us that it was on the first day of the week you can look in the context, you can look in the whole chapter. The only thing it tells us is that the only description for that day is that it is the Lord's day. And so what we, the burden upon us is to go through the Bible to identify which day does, the, does God claim as his own. Does God claim the first day, you know, the day that he resurrected? That's really the explanation. Or does he actually tell us that another day is the Lord's day? Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. I have a list of texts here. I'll just throw a few few of them out, see if you can finish the rest of the verse. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, the work which he has made. And he rested on the seventh day and hallowed it. For the seventh day is the what? Sabbath Sabbath of the Lord thy God. And then in Isaiah chapter 58 also it says, If thou wilt call the Sabbath a delight and turn away thy foot from doing thine own pleasures on what? My holy day. And then in Mark chapter 2, it says, Sabbath was made, man was not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. So the Son of Man, therefore, is also Lord of the Sabbath. Three texts just off the top of our heads. Very clearly, God clearly delineates the Sabbath as his day, the Lord's day. So what that means is that John felt it so important to let the believers know That Jesus appeared to him on the Sabbath that he mentioned in the beginning of Revelation. So you remember why he was on on Patmos, right? John, John was in exile there by himself with no believers. So it was a confirmation that the Sabbath is still the day for us to worship for Jesus to appear to him on the Sabbath. Does that make sense? If, if Sunday was the day we ought to keep, then John would have said, Jesus came to me on the first day of the week. Or he would have clearly stated, and because the first day of the week is the day that we need to worship. But no, he emphasizes uh, the Lord's Day. And uh, believe it or not, I tend to think that there's a little bit of a hint that uh, somewhere later on down in this book, this Sabbath issue, the Lord's Day issue, is going to come up again. And uh, for those of us who study Revelation, we know that's the case. All right, so we're going to move on to chapter 2 today. We're going to discuss the first of the seven churches. This is the church of Ephesus. The church of Ephesus. So let's begin in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 1. Okay, I'm going to try my very best to get it all in because there's a lot that we need to cover. So um, if you'll bear with me, I'm going to read through the whole passage of the church. Uh, That's the first seven verses, and we'll be dwelling on those uh, today. Chapter 2, verse 1 of Revelation. Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience. And how thou canst not bear them which are evil. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars. And hast borne and has patience, and for my name's sake has labored and has not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because you have left your first love. Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly and will love and, rem, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. There you have it. Seven verses, First Church of Revelation all of the all of the messages to the churches can be divided into a similar pattern. Jesus is introduced and it's introducing him with some very special characteristic. And then he comes and he commends the church. He gives a commendation of stuff that the church is doing right or doing well. And then he comes and he rebukes the church, something that he has against them, and he gives them after that the curse and the admonition, meaning This is what you can do to repent. And if you don't repent, this is going to be the curse that you're going to receive. And then finally, he comes with a blessing for those who overcome. So that's one, two, three, four, five sort of chunks that you can break his messages down into. And uh, with that sort of framework in mind, some of these churches are, are interesting because there are certain ones that don't have certain parts or components. But in Ephesus, we see all of them. And Jesus, first of all, he's introduced, again, using very visual words or visual imagery. We're going to need to see this picture in our mind's eye in order for us to really understand. So how is Jesus introduced? First of all, it's a repetition of how he appeared in chapter 1, isn't it? And so it's a repetition of what we've already seen. But let's, let's talk about it. We didn't talk about that before. Jesus is seen as having seven stars in his right hand. And those are the seven angels or the seven ministers, seven messengers. That's what the word angel means of the churches. So the leaders or the messengers to the church, where are they? They're in Christ's hand. He's holding them and he's walking in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. Now, what does a candlestick look like? At least in the Bible. What what does a candlestick look like? Yeah. That's the only kind of candlestick I really see described in the Bible. Uh, so that's the best best lead we have to go on. Of course there's other kinds of candlesticks. But it looks like Yeah, of course. That's right. But here we go. The menorah, the comment that was stated was it looks like the menorah, seven-branch seven candlestick. But <clears throat> how many of them are there? It's not just one candlestick with seven branches because Jesus can't walk through the little spaces between the branches. It appears as though there are seven distinct candlesticks, each with seven branches. You see the you see the picture? And we also notice that we don't get into the, the holy place of the sanctuary until Revelation chapter four. That's where you actually see seven lamps. And that's where you see the actual candlestick. Right here, we're still on the earth, okay? So this this is the imagery. Jesus is walking through the seven seven branched candlesticks. And what do those branches have on them based on the sanctuary? I mean, this is, this is just a trivia question, but almonds. So it's an almond tree. The candlesticks are like a tree with seven branches with fruit on them. You sort of get the, the there's a visual picture. And Jesus is walking through the trees. What does that remind you of? What does what kind of picture does that bring to mind? Jesus walking through the trees. Uh, where's the mic? Someone had a comment over here. What what does it look like? Think 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 Bible story here. Gethsemane, that's one. There's another one. In Genesis three, after Adam's sin. It says, the voice of God walked through the garden. And interestingly, look at the blessing. I'm skipping around here. Look at the blessing that's given to the church of Ephesus in verse 7. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of what? The tree of life. So Jesus, to the Ephesus church, he's given the imagery. Welcome to the front row. Jesus is pictured as walking through the garden. <clears throat> reminiscent of him walking through the garden back in Genesis, searching for lost sinners so that he can restore them to the tree of life. That's Ephesus. That's the picture. Okay, so what does what does he say now? Okay, so that's the picture of Jesus. He's holding the seven stars. He's tending to the lights. There's There's another spiritual application there, isn't there? Sometimes we we burden ourselves with, with burning bright. But who's the one that really tends to the flame? Jesus is the one that needs to tend to our flame. And without that connection, we're not going to burn. And that's actually the problem with Ephesus. We're going to see that in a minute. All right, so let's move on to verses 2 and 3. Um, this is the commendation. So Christ now is is um, giving encouragement or things that he sees as going right with the church let's have a volunteer to read verses two and three and as you raise your hand I as we read this verse I want you to notice what is the theme or what's the what's the tone what's the main point of uh, this ephesus like what is that one thing that they're so good at what's the crux of their blessing okay we have a reader right over here remember to read out loud i know your works your labor your patience and that you cannot bear those who are evil and you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars and you have preserved and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary all right. In those two verses, there are a lot of—they're um, not exactly synonyms, but they're very similar terms, isn't it? It sort of gives this, it gives this idea of what Ephesus is all about. What what kind of feeling does um, do you have about Ephesus? What like what kind of a church is this? Are we looking at? Anyone? All right. The class has outgrown uh, the the size where people are able to speak freely. So uh, I guess I'm going to have to <coughs> not uh, depend so much on spontaneity here. But, okay, down here we have a comment. It looks to me like they're in a uh, position where they're able to sort things out. Okay. And they're... Uh, trying to see whether or not those who are amongst them are uh, teaching the truth. Okay, so he said he, it's, uh, they know how to sort things out and determine who's teaching the truth. That's actually, we're going to spend a lot of time on that in a minute. But the overarching tone that I get out of it, those two verses, is that Ephesus is a very hard-working church. You know, they, they labor, uh, they have patience, and they work, and it actually says they labor twice. And, and Christ sort of emphasized, you guys work really hard. You guys are really diligent. You guys are just on top of your game type of thing. Yeah. So this is a very hard-working church. That's sort of the overall arching theme. But then it says in verse 2, You cannot bear them which are evil. <clears throat> That's, that's, pretty, that's pretty plain language. They can't bear those who are evil. They, they dislike wickedness. They dislike immorality. They have high moral standards. Isn't that pretty clear? And um, another word, perhaps, is that they hate evil. You can't bear those. You hate them in a sort of a way, right? Right? Okay, we're going to keep that in mind. And it says they tried the men who claimed to be apostles and found out that they weren't. I'm just going to touch on this and then we're going to come back to it. But this idea of testing the apostles, how do you test someone who claims to be an apostle? By what standard? By the Bible. To the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to the things. It is because there is no light in them. So Ephesus, not only are they do they have high moral standards, not only are they very hardworking, they also know their Bibles. They know their Bibles very well. And so, if um, if I can use modern vernacular, uh, this is um, this is labeling. I know putting people in boxes, but you know we, we throw these terms around, and I think you understand what I mean. Ephesus, to me, is what we would label as a conservative church. Conservative by their standards, their way of life, uh, their knowledge of the scriptures. Conservatism in that sense. But this church has something wrong with it. Christ has a rebuke for this church. And what is it? Verse 4. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee because you have left your first love. Now, the first love concept is is something that we can spend the whole class period talking about, and there's more to cover than that. But to just put it simply, it is not enough for a church to hate. All the right things. Follow me. It is not enough for a church to only hate evil and to do a lot of good things without the proper spirit behind what they're doing. And that's the problem with Ephesus. They do a lot of good things. They work really hard. They hate all the right things. They hate evildoers. They hate wickedness. They try all those false prophets and false apostles. And, he fi- and they figured out who was right and who was wrong. So th- there's a fine balance here. And that is Christ actually commends them for doing those things. So, meaning, so let me put it this way. Even, if, even though they have left their first love, it is still a good thing for them to do all of those good works. So it is, it is not right for us to say, if, if my heart's not in it, uh, then forget it. I'm not even going to do what I, what I know is right. But there is the delicate balance of having the right spirit behind what you're doing. So it's, a very, it's very easy for this church to sort of parse the sermon and figure out if the preacher's a heretic. But then they so they just boot them out the church, without showing the proper love and compassion that they should have. And uh, again, there's so much more that we can say, but um, there's one verse here. There's one verse here I'd like someone to read for us. It's First Thessalonians chapter one verse three. First Thessalonians one verse three. All right, Carlos is ready. Whoever gets that can read it for us. All right, Carlos on the other side. And it reads, Remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in your Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father. So... There was an apostolic church called Thessalonica, the Thessalonians, who also had work. They worked, they labored, and they had patience also. But they also had in the mix the proper spirit. They had work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope. So it's not just, Christ doesn't just want us to work. He doesn't just want us to labor. He doesn't want us just to have patience. He wants us to work in faith. And then he wants us to labor in love. He wants us to have patience with hope. You see the difference? There's There's one way where you're just sort of, you're just doing it for the sake of doing it. And Christ still says that you should do it even if you don't feel like it, by the way. But we need to do it with the assistance of the spirit of god and let's move on here what's the rebuke like what's the what's the curse i mean if they don't turn away from this it says very clearly in verse five or else i will come unto you quickly and will remove your candlestick out of its place except you repent actually let me just read the rest of the verse Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come quickly and remove your candlestick. So Christ is actually saying, if you do not regain or repent of this loss of your first love, then you are no longer fit to be a candlestick. And this makes perfect sense. Remember the visual picture we had. Christ is walking in the midst of the candlesticks, right? Right? So what are the candlesticks illuminating? Christ. And so if you are doing all the right works and all the right labors and have the patience of the saints and whatever, but without love, you're really not, we are really not illuminating Christ, are we? And once we stop illuminating Christ, we cease to fulfill the occupation or the role of a candlestick. And so the candlestick is no longer needed. And it also mentions that losing the first love is a moral fall. It doesn't say that it's just a temporary uh, negligible type of uh, misstep. It is a moral fall which requires repentance. And uh, repentance from our sins. Okay. There's a this subject is, um, is too deep for us to plumb, but um, I need to move on. So let me read this one quote, and then we'll, we'll move on. It says here, this is from the book Daniel and the Revelation by Uriah Smith, on page 365. It says, the time never should come in a Christian's experience when if he were asked to mention the period of his greatest love to Christ, he would not say the present moment. Does that make sense? Uh, Uriah Smith had a way with words. It's, he sort of stated in the negative. But basically, it says, for every Christian, there should never be a time where we cannot say right now is when I love Christ the most. And he goes on to say, if, that's the, if you cannot say that right now, then you need to go and repent because you've lost your first love. That's what Uriah Smith says. He's not inspired, but that's a very poignant way to describe what Ephesus rebuke was. All right. Now, now I want to get to the real study. Actually, we have um, only a few minutes, so let's try our best here. The seven churches, other than just describing the faithful, it describes the unfaithful within the church. It's describing the situation within the church. And so here in Ephesus, we already see sort of a delineation between two groups. There's a group who are the faithful, they try the apostles, and then there are the other group which are the false apostles, the liars. I want to look at those for a moment. The church of Ephesus is found throughout the New Testament in the book of Acts and then the book of Ephesians, the book of um, 1st and 2nd Timothy essentially were for the Ephesians. And uh, in um, Acts chapter 20, Acts chapter 20, let's turn there. The Apostle Paul calls a meeting of the elders in Ephesus. He calls a meeting of the elders in Ephesus because he has some pressing last word to give to them. This is right before he's taken away, never to return to the church in Ephesus. So in verse 17 of Acts chapter 20, And from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church. All right. So we set the stage. The elders are coming to meet with Paul. Let's look in verse 29. What does he say to them? He says, For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also among your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Paul gives a very specific warning to the Ephesian church. He says, There will come a time where grievous wolves will stealthily come into the church, and some of these men will be your own leaders. They will arise. They will teach false things, perverse things, and they will take away disciples after themselves. You know what that sounds like? It sounds like a false apostle. They rise up. They claim to have apostolic authority. They take disciples after them. They teach wrong doctrines, and they split the church. And in um, Revelation chapter 2, this Ephesus church deciphers who these false apostles are and discovers that they are called liars. And um, what does the Bible have to say about liars? when i'm studying i want to try to f- hone in my my focus on related books and the john the revelator also happened to write extensively on this concept of liars in god's church and it's in the book of first john all right let's look in first john first john chapter 2 and verse 4 i'm going to Try to try to keep up here. We're gonna fly through a few verses and then we're gonna make an application. Alright, first John chapter two verse four says, He that saith I know him and keepeth not his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. So first, a liar is someone who says, I know God, but doesn't keep his commandments. Alright? Number one. Number two. First John, chapter 2, verse 22. Same book, same chapter, verse 22. Who is a liar? But he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ. He is Antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son. So another type of liar, they deny that Jesus is Christ, meaning they deny that Jesus is the anointed Messiah or that he is the Lord. Liar number one, says that he knows God but doesn't keep his commandments. Liar number two, denies that Jesus is God or Jesus is the Lord. Okay, let's look also in uh, 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4 verses 1 through 3. This one connects quite closely to Revelation chapter 2. You'll see many similar words. Verse 4, it says, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits. The church of Ephesus, they tried those who say that they're apostles. Uh, try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God, um, that every spirit confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesses not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God and this is the spirit of antichrist whereof you have heard that it should come and even now already is in the world so number two try the spirits to know if someone is a false prophet or false apostle as in the church of ephesus you need to understand if they truly believe that jesus came in the flesh which happens to talk about christ's human nature so John here makes a big deal about Christ's human nature. It has to do with the Antichrist. And those that deny that Jesus is Christ is also of Antichrist, who is also a liar. They that say we know God but does not keep his commandments is also a liar. Okay, one more liar. 1 John chapter 4, verse 20. 1 John chapter 4, verse 20, it says, If a man say... I love God and hateth his brother, he is a liar. So we see John, the same writer as in Revelation, sort of expound on this idea of trying the apostles, discovering that they are liars, what he is identifying. So let's take one let's look at one more verse. It's in first John chapter three. First John chapter three it gives us the illustration of a man who says that he loves, his, loves God but hates his brother. Uh, 1 John chapter 3, verse 12, it says, Not as Cain, who was of that wicked one, and slew his brother, and wherefore he slew him, because his own works were evil and his brother's were righteous. So here's what we've seen so far. The church in Ephesus, they knew their Bibles very well. And they discovered that there were false apostles in the church who crept in, who were trying to take away disciples and split the church. And they taught perverse things. And what were they teaching? Things that make them liars according to the word of God. Okay? And so they taught, number one, you don't have to keep the commandments. I love God. I don't keep the commandments. That man is a liar. They deny that Jesus Christ is the Lord. They deny Jesus came in the flesh, his human nature. And they also say that they love God, but they hate their brother. And they persecute their brother because their works are evil and their brother's works are righteous. Now let's go to the book of Jude. The book of Jude also describes this very same group of people. And the whole book of Jude is talking about contending for the faith. Fight for the faith that was once delivered unto the saints. All right, it says here, verse 4, Jude, only one chapter, verse 4. For there are certain men who crept in unawares. That's sort of a jive with what we've seen so far. Grievous wolves, they creep in. Who were of old, who were before of old ordained to this condemnation. Ungodly men. Turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness, meaning using the grace of God as an excuse for lawlessness. That's what the word lasciviousness means, lawlessness. The grace of God me, with the grace of God, we don't have to keep the commandments anymore. That's what they teach. And denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So, so far, they say we don't have to keep the commandments. They creep in stealthily and they deny that Jesus Christ is Lord. And then verse 11. Verse 11, it says, Woe unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain. They hate their brother. And it also says, And ran greedily after the heir of Balaam for reward, and perished in the gainsaying of Korah. So this group of people is also identified as being related to Balaam. All right, let's look in Revelation now. Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, we're going to skip a few verses. We're going to jump down to the church of Pergamos. This is in verse... Let's look in verse 14. Talking about the church of Pergamos now, it says, But I have a few things against you, because you have there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, okay, Balaam, we see him, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. Verse fifteen. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. So this is what we've seen so far. We've sort of gone in a full circle. The church and Nicol- the, the the people of Nicolaitans, they have doctrines and they have deeds that Christ hates. Christ hates very few things, but he hates the deeds and the doctrines of the Nicolaitans. And the Nicolaitans are talked about as being related to Balaam. And this group of people that are like Balaam, according to the book of Jude, are those who creep in, claiming to be apostles, which are not, teaching perverse things, such as turning the grace of God into lasciviousness, or using the grace of god as an excuse to lawlessness and sinful lifestyle they also deny that jesus christ is lord and they also hate their brothers as cain so the nicolaitans therefore can also be categorized as that group of people that we see in revelation 2 in the church of ephesus as the false apostles the false apostles This is what I read. This is what I read in 7 BC. So this is uh, Ellen White Bible Commentary, 7th Volume, page 957. It says, The doctrine is now largely taught, the doctrine is, meaning today, is now largely taught that the gospel of Christ has made the law of God of no effect that by believing we are released from the necessity of being doers of the word but this is the doctrine of the nicolaitans which christ so unsparingly condemned a couple things i see from this quote first of all the doctrine of the nicolaitans are alive and well today it's being taught today the teaching that we can sin and live is being taught today. That is the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, and God hates that doctrine. The Nicolaitans, that was a, a, a big study just to show you from the Bible, but we confirmed it in the Spirit of Prophecy, who the Nicolaitans are and what they teach. As we go through the seven churches, you're going to see the Nicolaitans who started out in the first church lays the groundwork. It is the seed for Antichrist, for the papacy that comes later on in the seven churches. And it continues to live on even to this day. Okay, I think our time is up. I, I barely made it to the end. But um, if you have any questions, talk to me afterwards.